The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. Here's a question for you. In this time of national austerity and public belt tightening, can you think of one area of state spending which is entirely unaffected? Yes, it's our old friend, the Private Finance Initiative. While public services feel the squeeze, contractors that negotiated 30-year deals to maintain schools, prisons and hospitals have no need to worry. But this week, PFI is under the microscope. On Tuesday, a report from the Public Accounts Committee concluded, we found no clear and explicit justification for the use of PFI in terms of value for money. Joining me in the studio to investigate further, I have Conservative MP Jesse Norman. Alongside him is Paul Jarvis, editor of the Partnerships Bulletin, the PFI industry paper. And completing the lineup, we've got our very own transport correspondent, Dan Milmo. Welcome to you all. Jesse, let's begin with you. What makes private financial initiatives so different from previous ways of public sector procurement? Well, in the old days, if the government wanted to build a hospital or a road or a school, it just went ahead and built it uh, with its own money and it appeared on the national balance sheet and it was paid for by the taxpayer as and when. What PFI does is essentially to allow you to buy something on higher purchase. So it goes in now, it's paid for by the private sector, and then we, the taxpayer, pay pay the, as it were, the contractors back over about 25 or 30 years. The problem is that you don't just pay for the bit of kit, you pay for all of the maintenance and all the services that go on with it, and you don't have any visibility as to what those are. So you're writing one cheque every year, which covers the whole kit and caboodle. Paul Jarvis, pick up on that. The Public Accounts Committee this week claimed that local authorities and health trusts used PFI because there was no realistic alternative, not because it represented best value for money. What do you make of that? I think... The report actually says that they're not entirely sure whether they represent value for money because there's not enough evidence out there. So They didn't find a compelling case for local authorities no, and health trusts to use PFI. No, that's true. Um, and certainly in the past, over the past decade or more, the government has uh, worked to sort of push councils, local authorities down the... PFI route. Dan Milmo, as our transport correspondent, you've seen some of these PFI projects and how they've worked out up close. What's your experience? Well, um, as a journalist, they've been highly entertaining because they've been uh, (laughs) disastrous, particularly the the Tube, the notorious public-private partnership to upgrade the London Tube network, which fell apart for, for two reasons. One more related to our discussion, which is that it was just poorly structured and the main contractor, Metronet, uh, was allowed to build up a £2 billion overspend and went into administration. But secondly, it involved, it required a relationship of trust between the mayor's office and the contractor. And the last remaining contractor, Tube Lines, was, I, I would say, effectively hounded out of business and bought by the mayor because the mayor no longer wanted uh, it to continue. And it's quite an exa- interesting example that one of the world's most high-profile PFI projects can be effectively brought down because one of the partners doesn't wish it to continue. Is that a political story, though? Or that is, is that politics, commer- yeah. Is that a commercial story as well? It's also... Uh, the, the mayor said it was for commercial reasons that he uh, bought out Tube Lines, the last remaining PPP contractor. But I think you could say objectively that there was an accrual of power as well involved 
It's much in the same way that Ken Livingstone refused to help Metronet. He brought Metronet in-house and that made him you know, more powerful, gave him more power over his transport dominion in London. And it doesn't matter whether your name's Ken or Boris, you, you probably don't like PFI projects very much. No, I was quite surprised to see that Boris, you know, a free marketeer by political stripe, um, was more adamantly against the PFI, I think, than Ken Livingstone was by the end. I mean, it wasn't the problem with Boris, I don't want to interrupt, but it wasn't the problem with Boris that um, it was running at such a cost and there was so little democratic control over the thing that he simply couldn't allow it to continue. And when you'd seen Metronet go tits up with two billion quid, that was quite a, an example. The, yeah. the, 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 the interesting thing is that in PFI contracts, normally this can't happen. I mean, the only way you could overturn a large PFI contract now would be by legislation. And that would destroy the framework of understanding between the private contractors across the whole of the infrastructure procurement business. So it's not going to happen. Paul? I think there are two things here. First of all, um, just in terms of all PFI projects being disasters, that's certainly not the case. There are over 900 PFI projects now on the books that are um, operating and working largely very well. Uh, Some of them, yes, have problems. The underground is the biggest example of that and I think the issue part of the issue with the underground is that um, in fact a lot of the politicians have realized that the problems with PFI there's there's limitations to PFI one of those is that you can't do refurbishments very, very effectively and the problem with the tube is that by necessity it's, it's a refurbishment project and I think that came out in the um, the public accounts report as well yesterday with the the housing side of things being very difficult mainly in refurbishment for new build it's a lot more effective i mean the the london transport thing is a complete red herring in a way to this broad discussion because it's a very sui generis huge project in a single place the really interesting thing is to look at the vast swathe of pfi projects that have been done for um, schools and hospitals and on those what the public accounts committee found was that actually there was no robust data held by the department on these things and that fits into a picture in which essentially the treasury was ramping pfi in a kind of unholy alliance with the contractors and um, at often uh, these were successful but often they were very expensive and the real question is was this the right model in the case of a hospital do you want to have a piece of infrastructure that's going to be exactly the same in 30 years time for which you pay all of these high costs and inflexible working arrangements in between or especially at a time when if Andrew Lansley's reforms go through lots more people are going to be treated far closer to the home and the answer is you don't want that what you want is the kinds of things you see in the commercial real estate market flexibility um, great congruence of interest between the landlord and the tenant in a PFI they don't have any congruence of interest because the landlord doesn't own the building at the end of 30 years it gets handed over it's like so, so there's no equity there's no ownership stake there's lots of debt there's lots of debt cover which is expensive which you've got to get paid and you the final problem is that you don't have a situation in which the landlord is trying to please the tenant because they want them to stay there forever i think just to pick up on so it goes back really to the to the central issue of what a pfi is and, and why pfi was sort of developed and created in the first place one of the main reasons it was created was to tackle the problem of um buildings being built by the public sector, being left and just to degrade over years and years. And there are examples out there now. Royal Liverpool Hospital is probably a, a really good example where they're trying to get a PFI through because the existing hospital built in, I think, the 60s 
is literally crumbling around them and there are chunks of uh, concrete falling off that building because it was built, it was left, no maintenance had been done to it, no real work to ensure it was um, maintained uh, as a useful structure. And as a result, you're now in the situation where you've got a, a building that is not only perhaps not fit for purpose, but is actually crumbling around the patients. And I think PFI was designed as a way of tackling that problem. And, you know, the, the more and more we get into PFI projects, the, the more developed they become, the more you see projects that are designing school places in particular, actually, that are fit for different types of learning, different types of different ways of learning in the future. Well, if you want a story of what's wrong with PFI, you need look no further than George Osborne. Last Christmas, the Chancellor asked civil servants to purchase a modest 40 quid Christmas tree for the Treasury. When he did so, he set off a train of mind-boggling bureaucracy. You see, the Treasury's offices are run by a PFI contractor, and decisions about fittings of furniture are taken by contractors. The one in question presented the Chancellor's department with a bill for £875. Osborne kicked up a stink, of course, and in the end, as a goodwill gesture and perhaps to keep more PFI contracts coming its way, the company donated a tree free of charge. It's stories like this that have been used to demonise the private finance initiative ever since it was launched. Mark Hellowell is a lecturer in political science at the University of Edinburgh. I asked him whether PFI was ever going to be cost effective. To an extent, things have changed over time. I think initially, when private finance was introduced from the early 90s under the Conservative government on through the early years of the Labour government, uh, I think it was pretty cost-ineffective. The markets were extremely unfamiliar with this kind of contractual model, um, were pricing risks very, very conservatively. The cost of finance was, was very high. The number of bidders was typically very low, and you had a very, very concentrated and rather ineffective market. I think things changed a little bit during the credit boom, during which time, you know, bank finance, for example, was available at uh, just a couple, of, a couple of percent higher than the, than, than the rate at which the government could borrow for long-term investments. And I think now, following the financial crisis, we've, we've ended up back in a similar situation to the early days of the PFI program with banks um, lending with extremely high margins, despite the fact that the, uh, the, the amount of risk transfer to the banks in these schemes is extremely limited. So you, you're getting pretty uncompetitive interest rates uh, on, on the financing, and that's obviously having a material effect on the value for money of these deals. Perhaps during the boom years, you could make a case for saying that, okay, the, the cost of finance with the private sector is always going to be higher than the cost of finance for the public sector, but it might be that certain operational efficiencies that the private sector can deliver and is incentivized to deliver would offset that higher cost. But that argument is much more difficult to make in an environment like today's environment when the cost of finance is so high. Mark Hellowell there from the University of Edinburgh. Paul Jarvis, uh, let's talk a bit about costs. If the private finance initiative works well, then the government gets its school or its prison and the costs of them are kept off the government balance sheet. The private sector bears the majority of the interim risk but takes a tidy profit and everyone comes away happy. But that's not the way it's always worked out, is it? No, it's not. I would say that I agree, actually, with, with Mark, that during the boom years, 
it was definitely much more competitive probably in terms of um, the uh, margins you're getting from banks and it's definitely the case I think that following the the credit crunch the financial crisis it's been a lot more limited in the scope of of competition uh, that is available I think. Dan, the risk is meant to be transferred into the private sector, but oftentimes it's actually the taxpayer that ends up carrying it. Well, Metronet, the first failed tube contractor, is an interesting example. When it collapsed, the government had to pay off the £1.7 billion of borrowings that Metronet had made. And I I believe the principle of this is that the, the reason why PFI companies like Metronet were able to borrow in the private sector was they offset that higher cost through taking on more risk. Um, and yet, when Metronet collapsed, the risk fell back on the public sector and the government had to pay off all the debt to the tune of £1.7 billion. And I'd argue that if that sort of situation happened now, in our current difficult straits, it would actually be quite difficult to find £1.7 billion down the sock drawer, as it were. So in the, in the case of Metronet, there was no evidence of risk transfer at all. Jesse, what are we talking about here? Is it the public sector, the civil servants, government officials just being terrible at negotiating? Or is it the PFI model is itself pretty fundamentally flawed? I think it's both. Essentially, what happened in the last decade has been that the PFI projects have been ramped up by the Treasury. And the natural opposition that would exist within government, which is that the departments would be worried about taking these additional costs onto their own balance sheets didn't exist because of these things called tax credits, or PFI credits, which essentially mean that take the department out of the loop. What Danny Alexander did um, six months ago was to insist that governments, uh, that departments bear the cost of their own PFIs. And guess what? That's led to a drastic Uh, understanding by the departments that they have to be much smarter about their commercial management, not just of the procurement of these things, but also of the management of costs while they're running. Now, let's be clear, the Department of Health doesn't have any relationship on PFI at all with 40% of the hospitals uh, under its control, PFI hospitals. It doesn't have any kind of contact with 12 uh, percent of them. It doesn't keep robust data. It's completely out of the loop on billions and billions of pounds of money, public money, in 67 projects. It's very easy, this is a party political point, for people to say, well, this stuff was invented by the Tories. But the facts are that no hospital PFI was done before 1997. And the first action of the Labour government on coming in was to remove Alistair Ross who ran the independent PFI panel, and who was the person who was acting as the custodian of taxpayer value. So, There's a real, real issue here. On the point of risk that Dan raises, he's absolutely right about that. Because these debts have been so highly financed with debt, uh, because these projects have been so highly financed with debt, the the natural uh, fact of the matter is going to be that the the institution, in the first case, will have to bear the risk. If it's the QEH hospital, for example, in Birmingham, that's the Royal Bank of Scotland. That's us, £400 million. So who's taking the risk there? When the Public Accounts Committee looked at the M25 road widening, which was £625 million, pounds over budget or about 20 percent they discovered that risk had been transferred to the taxpayer not away from the taxpayer so what we see here actually is a fundamentally flawed model as well as poor administration what i like about modern politicians they tell you when they're about to make a party political point um <laughs> well i'm perfectly happy to make party <laughs> against my own party but i think it is fair because you hear a lot of this in the house well you Tories invented it truth matters they did but they were very cautious about using it it's only really been in the last 10 years that we've seen the problems arise. OK, question to the two journalists in the room, uh, Dan and Paul. Um, 
what Jesse's said there is it's, it's governments and government officials which have kept very poor records. But what about transparency on the private sector side? How have you two found dealing with PFI contractors? Metronet was a really, it's, it's just a terrible example. I'm sorry. I mean, anyone who tries to defend PFIs, you just, you just bring up Metronet because it's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> um, Metronet had five shareholders uh, who very generously uh, awarded themselves the contracts, uh, the subcontracting work on Metronet and built up costs that people didn't even notice were building up and projected overspends. And I, I remember the day it emerged that it was going to reach $2 billion and everyone just ended up saying, how did that happen? And it was just truly bewildering how it, how it got to that stage in, in a world record shortage. of It was like three or four years that they managed to build it up as well. So no, there was no transparency with Metronet. Um, I would say, however, the caveat being that tube lines, which performed a lot better than Metronet, was still still bought out, um, was shown by the independent arbiter of the PPP tube contracts to be cheaper than London Underground. And the existence of that arbiter brought transparency to the operation of uh, London Underground financially. I think I would agree that in terms of the private sector, it is still quite difficult to get uh, information and to... Um, find out exactly sometimes the, the um, ins and outs of, of particular contracts. But I just want to come back to the question of risk. The Public Accounts Committee report this week did point out that risk is transferred in uh, quite a, you know, a number of, of PFI contracts to the private sector. And there's a, a good example of that in, the, um, in that report, talking about a, a hospital project where £100 million was the hit taken by the private sector rather than the, the profit taken by them. And so it's certainly not fair to say that um, risk is never transferred to the private sector or that it's, you know, it's done poorly. And, and I think private contractors would be sort of or are up in arms about the idea that they're just creaming off profits on every project that they, that they do and not taking any risk. And I think that's just not really an accurate analysis. Jesse, briefly. It, it's certainly true that in many cases risk has been transferred and the private sector is not creaming off enormous profits, but there are far too many projects amply documented of the opposite. Um, on the point of transparency, it's very important to realise that there is no transparency whatever. These documents of the contractual arrangements are never made public. One of the things we should be looking to is transparency of all future PFI documentation uh, with government, uh, contractual documentation, and also the publication, I think, of existing PFI contracts, because the taxpayer should be able to see how the money's been spent and hold the appropriate people to account. The other crucial point is there's no transparency within a contract. Imagine you're running a hospital. What you get is one check, one invoice every year covering all of your capital costs, all of the building construction repayment, and all of the maintenance and running costs of your soft services within the hospital. Now, how can you negotiate on that? You never see any of the actual sub-costs. In the case of Hereford Hospital, my own hospital, we have a situation where we have the special purpose vehicle, which is the contracting entity. You have three contractors underneath them, and they have their own subcontractors. In each level, a degree of profit is built in. So you've potentially got three levels of profit before you actually get to someone who's going to do some work. That's how you get the £180 fish and chips in the treasury. That is the reality. There is no transparency either of the contracts or within the management of the costs. Now, the one other charge levelled at Pier 5 buildings is that they're changing the way Britain looks physically and not for the better. That's the view of architecture critic Owen Hathley, author of a recent book called The New Ruins of Great Britain. I asked him what PFI has done to the landscape. It's made it cheaper 
in every possible way other than monetary. It's got this astounding ability to want to once cost enormous amounts of money and look awful, like look like it's had like threepence spent on it, which is which is quite an achievement. Even sort of basic things like brickwork on PFI buildings, it's always kind of full of efflorescence and it's clumsy and there's never, you know, that they're even sort of badly made when you look at PFI buildings. There's a sort of shoddiness to them that's 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 that's, that's particularly depressing. Aren't you just part of a long wave of reaction to every bit of new building that comes up? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, there's, a, there's uh, unfortunately, it's rather minimal, but there is decent new architecture going up. You know, broadcasting Place Tower in Leeds or Oxley Woods and Milton Keynes. You know, there's, there, are, there are good new modern buildings. It's not a question of style, this. It's a question of ineptitude. It's not the modernity of PFI that makes it so bad. It's the kind of desperate, desperate sort of eagerness to please at once with the kind of like, you know, the, the, the kind of wobbly roofs and the kind of, you know, the bits of like stock brick, the bright colours, the way that it always looks like it's kind of designed for children, you know, the kind of infantilism of it, the way that you're constantly being talked down to. And, you know, in a way, I mean, it's not that they're actually particularly modern. I think what they, what they usually try and do is, you know, be a bit modern and a bit, a bit familiar and a bit kind of everything at once. And it's that, it's that attempt to kind of cover all bases and have no particular strong design ideas that makes PFI architecture so bad, really. Owen oh, Hathley there. Um, let's go around the table. PFI is expensive, it's ugly, and it needs bailing out by the taxpayer. Why should the current government persist with it? Paul Jarvis, you, you answer that. I think, first of all... On the the ugly point, I think um, you have to remember that actually an awful lot of work has gone into uh, designing all these projects. And the, in fact, from the private side, one of the biggest complaints at the moment is that so much work goes into designing them and deciding every sort of last detail of them that it can be quite costly for the for the private sector. In which case, suggestions that it it's not it doesn't look nice or whatever. Well, that's actually you know been designed by the people involved in the projects, by the public sector involved in the projects, whether it be the the school leaders or the hospital leaders. I think in terms of uh, why the government should persist with it, the government, the Treasury, is actually doing an awful lot of work at the moment on reworking the model and looking at ways to improve on the past decade. You have to remember we've had around 100 hospitals built in the last decade almost a large majority through PFI or PPP. We've had a massive wave of school building renewal. We don't currently have the money to pay for the any future infrastructure from government funds. We know that, the, that there's no money left to pay for these things. So bringing in private investment is going to be absolutely crucial. And fortunately, there is work going on in the Treasury at the moment to make sure that the model going forward is an improvement on the past. Dan Milmo, we can keep trying to repair it, but actually the model is just bust, isn't it? I've developed over the past two years quite a sort of Presbyterian fear of debt because of the, you know, the credit crunch. Just on even the most basic level, London Underground and Network Rail are going to have a combined debt of around £30 billion over the next few years. In fact, it's approaching that now. I already think that transport in the UK, public transport, has far too much debt loaded into it. PFI, which has been a, has been a failure on the London Underground, and that was a £30 billion contract, is just going to load more debt into the way that we provide public transport in the UK. So I'd really, I'd rather sort of call it a halt here. Um, 
Jesse Norman, the PFR was meant to be a kind of third way between public building and private sector building. Is Should we go back to one of those two or is there a fourth way? I mean, just on the different points that have been raised, I think the the point about ugly is right. And one of the reasons is because these are essentially corporate-led projects. I mean, they've been led in part by the contractors. They've got very fixed ideas about what a building should look like, and they want something that's cheap and utilitarian. And they also, um, that's not quite right, because, of course, they want a building that uh, is, as it were, has got lots of value built into it. And that's in visible value. And that's what I think the that your critic, architectural critic, is getting at. Um, they're also quite badly designed in terms of the amount of space that's available. If you look at Norway, there are projects there which where, where they've far more hospital space can be released by more intelligent, um, less corporate design. On the point of value, of course, this was all done to keep the debt off balance sheet, but the new rules mean it has to be on balance sheet anyway. It's a supreme irony. So we're paying for it. It's just a cash flow matter as to when we pay for it. 100 hospitals have been built now, but we'll be paying for them for 30 years. On the model, uh, there is, I think, potential to for son of PFI. We have huge infrastructure needs. What CNF PFI is going to have to be is radically different. It'll have to be cheaper. It'll have to look much more like a standard property contract so that the market understands it. It'll have to be far more transparent. It'll have to give far more power to the contracting entity on the state side so that those folks can really see where the cost is being spent and be more in control. And I think also it's going to be one which aligns the incentives of the landlords and the tenants much more than they do. But I've no doubt that that can be done. I mean, you, you, are, you see good architecture um, in this country being built by private sector entities. There's no reason why we can't do it in the PFI, but we've just got to get the incentives sorted out and the cost lowered and the transparency increased. Well, on the question of the sun and PFI, we went back to Edinburgh academic Mark Hellowell. I think that what we're probably going to see is a sectoral approach. So different solutions will be adopted in different parts of the public sector. If you look at an area like healthcare, PFI deals uh, are still being approved by ministers in healthcare uh, in the NHS, albeit on a, on a much uh, a much reduced basis than a few years ago. Uh, but nonetheless, despite anti-PFI rhetoric, the Conservatives clearly take a view that uh, private finance is something that they introduced while in the last government. It's, it's not something that they're ideologically opposed to, and they will promote it uh, where it's in their interest to do so. And there is an incentive for them to promote it in the sense that by using private finance rather than public capital for projects, um, you don't get an immediate impact on borrowing statistics. So they have a, a kind of perverse incentive to promote PFI where they can, and I think in, in areas like healthcare, they're certainly continuing to do that. I think in other areas like roads, I think that the government's interested in much more meaningful privatisation of of economic infrastructure like that. I, I think we can expect to see some privatisation there, um, a, probably a regulated model, much like what we've seen in the utilities to regulate the user fees that will be introduced for, for users of roads. Um, so I think that the solution is going to be different in different sectors. I think the government, probably it's its principal objection to PFI is that it's too public and that where they can promote much more commercial forms of private finance, then that's what they'll seek to do. Mark, hello there again. Paul Jarvis, let, let's sort of get into the final straight of this. What, what's the future for PFI? Do we continue with it in its present form? Do we reshape it? Do we throw it out the window? Um, as I said, I think it is already being reshaped and remodelled, and I think that will continue. And I probably agree with, with Mark Hellwell's comments that it will be different in different sectors and i think it's been proven that it works better in different 
sectors than others. And I mean, coming back to the to the cost argument, Hartlepool Hospital, for example, was a project publicly funded originally. Um, Andrew Lansley came in and said it was too expensive, couldn't afford it, stop the project. And now, as I understand it, the uh, people at Hartlepool Hospital have um, worked on a new business case, which says, okay, private finance is the way to go. That's how we're going to be able to afford this. And they're going to put that to to the government, to the department uh, in the near future. So I think really looking at it, it will. It does work in some areas. Metronet is obvious, the obvious example of where it doesn't work. And I've said that you know refurbishment perhaps is not the best use of PFI. But there is still, as I said, a, a big need for private investment. And some reshaping of the existing model is what I think we're probably likely to see in maybe a year or so's time, that projects will start coming through, but privately funded in a slightly different way to the way we've seen over the past decade. Jesse Norman, I should offer you a right to reply. Well, well, I think that a lot of that is true. It will become more sectoral. There's obvious scope for PFI in areas where, as it were, politicians care less about the general public interest, cares less about whether it fails. Classic example would be a road. You know, um, that's one thing that can fail without government feeling the need to bail it out. A hospital cannot fail without the government feeling the need to bail it out. I think Mark's quite wrong about the incentives facing the new government. Uh, let's look at what's happened. They've actually made the departments responsible. That's started to restore a message, uh, some sanity to it. They've already had huge transparency in local government. I'm sure we'll see transparency in PFI coming. And, and of course, uh, they have also uh, had to deal with a sausage machine of projects that has been working for years to produce these things. So there's inevitably going to be some runoff. What they'll be looking at, I think, is a drastically slimmed down, reshaped uh, PFI, as I've described. If it'll be more sectoralized, that would be good and i think we'll find that there has to be a continued use of private finance because we still have huge infrastructure needs dan last word to you um the rsc foundation has done a very good report on the future structure of the roads road network future ownership of the the british road network and effectively it does recommend privatization of the road network um or at least selling it off and putting it into a sort of publicly publicly overseen utility structure um I just think given um, how difficult we find it uh, to even discuss road pricing as a concept without there being a, a petition thrown through uh, Downing Street's windows, I, I just think that's going to be politically toxic. Um, and I think that shows the struggle that we've got going ahead, finding alternatives to PFI. If, for instance, something as sensible as putting tolls in for all new motorways is going to be met with uh, a great deal of public opposition. Well, that's all from us this week. My thanks to my guests, Jesse Norman, Paul Jarvis and Dan Milmo. And to Owen Hathley and Mark Hellowell. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Adit Chakraborty. We're back next week. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.